Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to No One Really Cares, a song co-written with Roy Orbison and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Joe Melson. Joe co-wrote more than 200 songs with Orbison, including over half of Roy's 16 Monument Records singles that appeared on the Billboard chart between 1960 and 1963. Their first major hit together was Only the Lonely, a style-defining performance featuring Orbison on lead vocals and Melson on the prominent countermelody. The pair followed up their success with a string of hits, including Blue Angel, Running Scared, and Crying. Legendary songwriter Boodle Bryant once wrote, It would be an unpardonable oversight to overlook the contribution of Joe Melson to Roy's meteoric rise to stardom. In the 1960s, Joe landed his own record deal with the Hickory label, while continuing to pen songs for other artists. His successes in that era include the New Beats top 10 pop single, Run Baby Run, Back Into My Arms, and Don Gibson's top 40 country hit, Ever Changing Mind. In subsequent years, the team of Melson and Orbison reunited, working together as both co-writers and producers. Linda Ronstadt covered their Blue Bayou in 1977, making it a top five hit on both the country and pop charts. Credited with creating the template for the dramatic rock ballad, Melson has won multiple BMI awards. Blue Bayou was named one of BMI's top 100 songs of the century. Only the Lonely is among Rolling Stone's 500 greatest songs of all time, and Crying appears on both the BMI and Rolling Stone lists. Most recently, Melson joined forces with Australian Idol winner Damian Leith. The pair have released several singles since 2013 and continue to collaborate. Joe was inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame in 2002. Well, as we get started with this episode, we have another giveaway for you. We're doing a contest uh, for someone to receive a copy of Joe Melson's Hickory Records Collection CD. It's actually an autographed copy, so you're going to want to get your hands on that. Um, To enter, go to songcraftshow.com backslash Joe, and you can get all the details there. Very cool. So as we begin this conversation with Joe, you know, we we do a lot of interviews with people um, who are part of big songs, big careers, and big characters uh, in music history. And Joe is a part of the Roy Orbison story, you know, another really big character uh, in music history. And what I thought was really interesting was that Joe was very, very honest. While while completely respectful and loving to Roy, he was very honest about kind of um, you know how the relationship went, um, and and just how their history progressed. Yeah, you know Roy Orbison in a lot of ways was this tragic figure. I mean, for yeah. one thing, Roy Orbison is is an icon. I mean, you hear a Roy Orbison record, you don't go, "Who's this artist?" It sounds kind of familiar, even right. if you've never heard the song before. You know, you're listening yep. to to Roy Orbison, and um, Joe had a lot to do with developing Roy's style. I mean, they mm. were really like a team, a, a partnership in terms of creating that um, sort of melodramatic, huge rock ballad kind yeah. of thing. Um, but there was a time that they kind of parted ways for a while and then they got back together. And, um, you know, Roy went through, I think his, his wife, uh, was running around on him and he, uh, divorced her. And Mm. then 
they wound up getting back together and not too long after she died in a motorcycle accident where they were out, you know, motorcycling together. Um, a couple years after that, he was touring overseas and his house burned down and killed his two oldest sons. Um, you know, all this stuff was happening like 1966, 1968. Um, and, uh, Joe was talking about when, when they were sort of doing some of this stuff in the seventies, that the phrase he used was, you know, Roy was really down Yeah, and Roy's career was down at that point. Um, and obviously emotionally, how could Roy not be down? I mean, it, it would be hard to go through those sort of personal tragedies and be able to carry on uh, at all. Right. Um, you know, the the good news is we know that in the 80s, Roy actually did have this uh, resurgence and this triumph. Very much so. Um, I don't know if you've seen that Black and White Nights PBS. Oh, yeah, with Bruce Springsteen. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, T-Bone Burnett. And really cool. Bonnie Raid And I mean, it's like the most killer band. That is an incredible, probably one of the best concert videos yeah. ever shot. Um, and the whole Traveling Wilburys thing. And so Roy got to sort of, at the end of his life, get back on top once again and, and enjoy the accolades of being recognized, um, as a music legend and an yeah. icon. Um, but man, talk about some, some heavy stuff and some dark years. Yeah. And, but for all that, you know, up and down stuff throughout the sixties and in the seventies, you know, Joe Melson was there yeah. and, uh, Joe Melson was there writing the songs and, and just a part of the whole picture and, and all the people that came in and out of of Roy's life and career, um, you know, Joe was a really steadfast part of it. Yeah. You know, being from Nashville and being kind of a, a music history nerd, I'm always fascinated. Ooh, you, you? Yeah, yeah, I know. No. It's, it's hard to believe. Um, <laughs> I'm always fascinated by sort of the music industry lore, uh, yeah. having grown up around Nashville. And, you know, you hear these names, uh, people like Fred Foster, who uh, produced tons of great records, including Roy Orbison's records uh, for Monument, which are considered really his his classic yeah. stuff. Um, you know, you hear about Acuff Rose um, Music Publishing, which is one of the very first music publishing houses in Nashville. And, um, you know, that's where Hank Williams started out. That's yeah. where Felice and Boodle Bryant were, the Everly Brothers. Um, and that's where Roy was. I mean, yeah. Roy and, and Joe were writing songs for Acuff Rose. It's just cool to talk to a guy... Um, who was part of that, what I think of as, as history. And it seems like so long ago, and it seems like this magical otherworldly time. And to have the opportunity to talk to a guy who was kind of, you know, was in the studio working with, with Fred Foster, who right. was, you know, writing for Acuff Rose, who was um, interacting with Wesley Rose, who was kind yeah. of a controversial figure who, who ran Acuff Rose Music Publishing and was very involved in Roy's career. And a lot of people feel like Wesley took too much control of mm. Roy's career in areas where maybe he wasn't uh, as much of an expert as he might've thought he was and, and alienated some people. And, and, you know, Joe was, um, is a classy guy. He didn't badmouth right. the guy at all, but, right. um, you know, I think that had a lot to do with a lot of people who were alienated from Roy's inner circle, including Joe for a time, uh, you know, when, when Roy was kind of at the pinnacle of his success. Yeah. And you know, for for all the history that Joe is is a part of uh, and was telling us about, he's still writing songs. He's still yeah. very much a part of the now, yeah. um, which we'll hear about um, when we get kind of near the end of the interview. But um, there, there's a lot to get to here, a lot to lot to hear. So let's uh, let's get into this conversation with Joe Melson. Yeah, let's dive in. Sounds good. Joe, welcome to Songcraft. 
thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your earliest musical influences were. Uh, I grew up in uh, Texas, uh, East Texas, uh, in a little place called Fannin County. And around Bonham, Texas, actually, I grew up. I grew up in that area. My early influences of music were, uh, well, my dad sang and played guitar. Hmm. And I listened to him. I liked him. He he did a kind of a weird tuning to the guitar. Huh. He tuned it in a chord. In other words, instead of having to put your fingers on the, the keys to make a chord, the way he tuned it, it made a chord just by strumming it. Yeah. Right. Right. Huh. Yeah, it was really cute, so I liked that. And that was one of my influences. And my, uh, uh, a lot of my influence came out of Oklahoma when, my, when I was about 13, 14 years old. I lived up there with my grandmother and my Aunt Ruby and Uncle James. I had an Aunt Ruby and Uncle James McCoy, great-grandson of the real McCoy. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so uh, anyway, she played guitar and sang, and, uh, and my granddad was a great fiddler. And so they'd sit on the porch and, and play music at night and evening and, while the fireflies ran across the lawn, you know, right, right. wonderful time. And she was particularly interested in me. She encouraged me all the time. She thought that I would be a, I would play guitar mostly then. And uh, she thought that I would be a really a strong guitarist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my first guitar was a, a Stella. A oh, yeah. Stella. I don't right. know if you heard of them or not. Sure. Way back here. A little cream colored guitar. It cost, uh, it cost me $13, I think. I picked cotton. Huh. And paid for it. And I got that guitar, and I went to school. And it, he was this one when I was in. Well, I was only about ten, eleven, twelve years old. And I went to school down there, and and take that guitar with me and play it for the girls every day. You know, <laughs> I only knew one chord. It was D chord. Daddy taught me, and right. boy, that, that's I love that chord. I thought it was the most beautiful chord I ever heard. But that's my early, early, early influences were right. my dad and my grandmother. Hmm. And they, I, I bet mean, those. Uh, Ruby and Uncle James, uh, bet those strings were about an inch and a half off that fretboard, huh? And it was probably quite a bit off. <laughs> <laughs> right, those old guitars like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I understand that after high school, you fronted a group called the Cavaliers. Um, tell us what kind of music you guys were playing, and what kind of songs you were starting to write in those early days before you got together with Roy. Okay, when I uh, I was listening to the market all the time. I, I listened to all kinds of songs: country, pop, rock. Rhythm and Blues. I listened to all the market, what was available. I knew every song in the market. I, mm. I learned every song because I wanted to learn the... Uh, I was particularly interested in style, a lot of style of how the singers sang, why they sang a certain way, low, high, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I was interested in that. And I, uh, But I, uh, before Roy, I wrote... Uh, my songs were weird. I thought they were weird. It's, they changed chords, you know, strange to me <laughs> and everything. They weren't like anyone else's weird. But uh, I wouldn't know how to classify them unless you just said there's a mixture of country, pop, and rock, and Mexican. I, I, wow. There's no way to define uh, exactly what they were because they were weird. It didn't sound like anybody else's. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <was> weird sounding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because Paul and I were just talking before we called you. Some of those Roy Orbison things almost have a little bit of a, of a Mexican-sounding influence, and I don't want to jump ahead too far, but before we get to the to the Roy years, was Mexican music something that you were kind of absorbing down there in Texas? Oh, definitely. You, you absorb Mexican and uh, black music and country and pop. Yeah. You get it, you get it all, and uh, it's a melting pot for, for wonderful wonderful artists and kinds of music yeah definitely we were influenced by mexico i love mexican music 
Yeah. And I, and I love the blues. And I like country for country. I like Hank Williams and all these people. Letter for self, especially. I fell in love with him. Yeah. But I... I, I could not write country, hmm. but I love the way they did it, but it wasn't for me. I yeah. was looking for a different kind of music. Sure. Well, how did you first get acquainted with Roy Orbison? Uh, he had a a show. I had a show on KMID TV in Midland. He had one on KOSA TV in, in Odessa, Texas, for Pioneer Furniture. Right. And my friend of mine, uh, Ray Rush, had been working with me on uh, my writing and singing, he said that I ought to have a contract, so he was getting me to put things on tape so he could send them to Decca or wherever and try to get me a contract just right before I met Roy. Right. Well, one day he came over and he said, Roy's going to be on the uh, Pioneer Furniture opening out here for an opening for somebody mm. right. out here, and he's going to sing. He said, I want you to hear him. So I tuned in and I heard him sing, uh, let me hear some of that rock and roll music, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I uh, and I liked the way he did rockabilly. I really liked it, I, and uh, and so I heard him. And then uh, and Ray Rush, like I said, was was a very instrumental in putting us together. And he's a kid lived down in Texas. He kind of part manager for me, I guess you'd say. Right. Uh, and he heard a song. I was writing on a song one day that that uh, one evening. I said I did a phrase of you know da 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 da. He said, what in the world is that? Because down in Texas, that's unusual to hear that kind of phrasing. You know? right. And he said, what is that? And I told him as a song I was writing. He said, finish it. I'm gonna, I want you to show it to Roy. <laughs> wow. So I finished it, and it came out. That song was Raindrop. Yeah, that was on Roy's uh, Lonely and Blue LP, his first Yeah, his our first, first album there. That was the beginning of of a race and man that, that's the most beautiful song I ever heard. Wow. He says write it and we're gonna we're gonna I want you to show it to Roy. So that tickled me to think, you know, I, I liked Roy, I'd heard him, I heard him once at the Middle Youth Center. Right. And uh, I listened to him and I liked his I was not impressed with the type of music he's singing, but I liked the way he did it. Mm. Yeah. But I knew there was a better music and I was looking for it. <laughs> I was you impressed found it. with the sincerity of his voice. Yeah. Right, right. That's what impressed me. The yeah. sincerity of his voice. I said, kid, I love, he's believable. This kid could go somewhere, you know what I mean? Right, sure. So, or this guy, like, then I was a kid too. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so you went and, uh, and you had written Raindrops. Roy heard it. Uh, talk a little bit about how then you and Roy got into actually writing songs together. Well, when we finished Raindrops, uh, Roy uh, got called Roy and said, I'm going to bring you over. And, sh- and I met him, and uh, we did. We went over, and Claudette was sitting on the bed. And he came to the door and said, how you doing, Joe? And I said, fine. And uh, he said, you have a song for me? I said, yeah. You want me to hear it? And I said, yeah. And I sang it to him, and Claudette come up out of, off the bed. She said, Roy, get me a tape of that song, a dub. I love that song. Hmm. I love that song. Yeah. So she really, really had a fit over it. <clears throat> I thought it was okay. I didn't know it was that good. You know? But anyway, <laughs> she... She had a fit over it. So because of that, her Ray and his wife flipping on the song, Roy really listened to right. what was being said, you know, and and uh, while they felt about it. 
So when I told Roy good night that night, I told him, I said, hey, I turned around as we left. He said, nice to meet you, Joe, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, he said, that's a nice song. And, and I said, well, thank you. I said, Roy, I love your voice. When I, That's the last thing I told him when I left. And boy, a grin broke out on his face. It's unreal. Mm-hmm. I said, I love your voice. And so then we left about, I don't know, three weeks, a month or so ago. I was over to college, going to college in Odessa, and I was over to slow driving where you get, you know, coke girls come up with the skates and all that <laughs> stuff. Right. And I saw this great, big green Cadillac drive up. I said, that's got to be Roy. And I, and he drove up and uh, got out and came over and said, hey, Hosey, call me Joe. Said, I've been looking for you. And I said, yeah. I said, it's good to see you, Roy. He said, how you doing? I said, okay. He said, well, look, uh, could we take a little ride? I'd like to talk to you. I said, sure. So we got in this Cadillac and drove out on the cars and I take this guy. And night, he said, you know, Joe, you write a pretty good song, and I write a pretty good song. He said, but I bet you if we put it together, we'd have some great ones. Hmm. Well, I said, well, let's do it. Yeah. He said, okay. So that's how it started. Wow. That's <laughs> cool. Wow. <laughs> so what's the what's the first song that you and Roy ever wrote together? Uh, the first song we ever wrote together was called, uh, well, there were many of, of the X-Files. We, we wrote about a year or so. Right. And sent them in to A-Cup and Rose. Yeah, 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 good, good. Keep writing, boys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And they didn't do anything. Nobody was interested in them. And, and uh, we finally, uh, Roy was in another room, and I was playing with the guitar, and I did a little run on the guitar, which is, a, is now a famous melody. Da-da-da-da-da, penthouse number three. He said, boy, that's a pretty melody. He said, that sounds really uptown. He said, Uptown, yeah, that's it. Let's write one called Uptown with that melody. And so <laughs> so we, that was our first one. Uptown, in penthouse number three. Uptown, there lives a doll just made for me. She's the finest thing that you've ever seen. Oh. And that was unique because it was beginning, Roy was rockabilly. Right. And I didn't want him singing rockabilly. Hmm. I told him, this, Presley's gone with rock and roll, Roy. Presley's the one. We gotta, I wanted to, we got to do something. we got to be different. Yeah, right. And I'd already had in my mind, because I was already writing on those type of songs. And so when we did Uptown, we started out rockabilly. Right. And hmm. then I inserted this pretty music in it. Da-na-na-na-na. Went into more pop music. Right. And that was called Pretty Rock. That's what I call it, Pretty Rock. Hmm. That was the first input of fusing rock and, and that more pop melody, or right. beautiful melody together. That was yeah. the first tack of it, Uptown. And that was, uh, you know, a, a billboard charter? I'm guessing that was the first time you Oh, yeah, were... it went up about midway. It wasn't no big, you know, knock them dead, but it, right. it got us started, and... And uh, it was setting up for Only the Lonely, you know? Yeah, for yeah. sure. You know, you, you mentioned before about listening to all the songs in the market and kind of, you know, gleaning from them. And I've heard you say in interviews that, that when you and Roy started writing, you, you continued to do that, to study songs that were on the radio to kind of learn what worked and what didn't. What were you learning about songs during that time? Well, I learned that uh, that the greatest singers are stylists. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, you, that's... That might be more argumentative. I don't know, but look at the platters. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, people that do that do something that's distinctive that kind of only they can present. Buddy Holly. Yeah. 
these Presley's just raw talent. He he you can't really pinpoint him down. Jerry Lee Lewis is one. Yeah. But uh, these are all. I said, well, the, the greatest singers are stylists. Yeah. Right. I said so. That's where I'm going to take. That's where I'm going to push Roy into. I'm going to take him into styling. Yeah. yeah. Styling. Right. Totally. Right. So the platters were a big influence on me. Uh, I, that lead singer for the platter just knocks me clean. Man. Yeah. Yeah. And so I said, well. I want Roy to end these songs big like the Platters. Oh, yeah. I, I, I want a black-white singer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you'll listen to the phrase of these songs, that's what I got. Right. Cry, that's yeah. blues. Right. But it's hidden because we don't use the blues chords. Right. But, but we use the outline of blues. Yeah, yeah. It's hidden, mm-hmm. but it's there. Um, you had had mentioned only the lonely a moment ago. That, of course, became Roy's first major hit when it went to number two on the Billboard Pop Chart in 1960. It even went to number 14 on the R&B chart as well. Only the lonely. obviously there in the studio singing that prominent counter melody that opens the song. Um, talk a little bit about how that song came to life in the studio in terms of the, not just the songwriting, but the performance and production that sort of made it what it is. Well, uh, the production w- was worked out in Texas. Hmm. Uh, we, Larry Parks, a little drummer, young drummer, they're really good. And he sang when we worked up the song to bring it into Nashville, Larry played with us right. on the song. He came up with that, that cha-cha beat. Yeah. And that became part of Roy's career, that wow. cha-cha right. beat. Yeah. And it fit that song. And I think Larry played on the song when we got to Nashville. I think he played on the hit record. Oh, wow. really? Yeah. But he was a wonderful drummer. Anyway, uh, we we had a... That song was first originally written by... I had, it all, I had a lot of the song written... I had it called Cry, hmm. and uh, Roy, Roy said, I'll take that into Wesley after I showed it to him, because I didn't know it was any good. Ray Rush heard the song. He said, let me sing that on television. Man, that's the prettiest melody I ever heard. Huh. And he, we, uh, believe it, we, no, no, no protection on the song or anything. We let it go out on all the television. Any writer could <laughs> figure it out. But uh, he sang it on television, and he sang it really beautiful. I said, well, maybe that's a pretty good song. But anyway, I finally showed it to Roy, and he took it into Wesley Rose, and Wesley said, well, I like the song, but uh, there was a Johnny Ray song called Cry. We had changed the title. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So Roy came back and said, hey, you know, uh, Wesley liked your song, but we got to change the title. Yeah, yeah. And I was writing one night. I said, how about Only the Lonely? Yeah. He sat there a little while, and he said, smoked, puffed on a cigarette. He said, you know. What do you think about a title called Only the Lonely, Joe? I said, that's what I just said, man. I just said Only the Lonely. He said, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. He said, I came up with that. I said, no, you didn't. And so I said, instead of this back and forth, 
I'll just say we both come up with it. <laughs> but he didn't come up with it at all. <laughs> he did not come up with it. That's one thing. He came up with some titles, but not that one. Right. <laughs> we put that together, and we got to Nashville. Of course, we pretty much had it arranged. So, you know, there goes my baby. Bum, bum, bum. All that was done in Texas. Right. Gotcha. That beat was put in there in Texas. Yeah. The only thing left was we we wrote the vocal figure uh, in Texas uh, for a song called uh, Come Back to Me, My Love. Huh. I believe that's the one we wrote it for. Right. And we put it in it instead of, as a figure inside the song somewhere, not as a, a trailing melody after the verse, right. uh, but a just a come in and do the do a turnaround with it and yeah. go back to the song. So we got out to to uh, Nashville. Fred Foster, i got to give him credit for it, he heard the vocal figure, and he said, you know, let's put that in Only the Lonely. Wow. But anyway, he said, uh, you do a verse, and let's put that dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-d
you know, they recorded songs so fast back then. You know, you'd go in, you'd cut four songs in one session. Um, that's, that's exactly right. You know, you guys, I don't know how we did it, man. Right. You know, it's it, obviously you had to kind of make those arrangements uh, in advance. There wasn't time to work that out in the studios. It's interesting that even those string punches and like what you're describing, that that kind of became part of the the creation process for the song. That kind of was part of the songwriting. Yeah, it way. is a part of the song. You're absolutely right. We we I came up with the beat to crying. I wanted a jungle beat, that real weird sounding, lonely sounding beat. Yeah. Right. And and so I came up with that, and we used it in crying. And I came up with a beat. Uh, Roy came up with a beat to Blue Bayou. I didn't. Yeah. Boom, yeah. Boom, boom. But I came up with a beat to crying and. And uh, uh, it fit. It just it, it's right. kind of a I don't know why you call it. It's kind of mystic type beat. Yeah. Kind of weird. Right. Right. And, yeah. Uh, but it fit, and that happened. Yeah. yeah. We 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 did an outline of classical music. You guys know that uh, classical music. Cause that's why you see the big beats and uh, or or the opera operatic beats. Right. Right. Yeah. That's why you hear a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, Roy's first Monument album, Lonely and Blue, was released in 1960 and included uh, a half dozen Melson Orbison compositions, including, you know, the hits that you guys had written up to that point, as well as songs like Blue Avenue, Come Back to Me, My Love, and I'm Hurtin', which became yet another hit for Roy, Raindrops. Now, literally within the span of one year, you went from a guy playing local gigs and working on, you know, some songs with your, your new partner, Roy Orbison to suddenly you're now one of the hottest songwriters on the planet. Um, in what ways did that success impact your life? Uh, Roy was busy going to the Dick Clark show and other shows, you know, and, uh, but we were getting fan mail from all over Europe. Won't know who those writers are. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of unreal. I just, it didn't, you know, it didn't, occur to me we made that kind of impact but yeah. the mail was coming in and they wanted to know who we were they wanted pictures they wanted to know all about us we had a fan club man yeah. for the writers I think well <laughs> so, that's you know, amazing yes they followed us everything we did wow yeah, yeah. Well, your your star kept rising. Um, you know, you scored your first number one on the Billboard Pop Charts in 1961 when Roy's recording of Running Scared became a massive hit. And we were actually just listening to this song um, this afternoon before we spoke. And yeah, that song starts really quietly, and it, but it just builds. It's this constant build to like an enormous dramatic production. It, it really highlights kind of the paranoia of the narrator of the story who kind of is worried that someone will take his girl. talked a lot about the sound of these records um, and the melodies and stuff, but we haven't talked a lot about the lyrical content. And you and Roy often wrote kind of from a perspective of a guy who is unsure of his relationships with women or coming from a place of maybe the outsider. Um, were these songs autobiographical for you and what you were walking through in your life? Or were you kind yes, of creating a character? they were. Only Lonely is a true story. Really? Mm. And so is Crying. And I guess you'd spill that over with Blue Angel also, you know. Yeah, and Running Scared is a friend that the beats 
it's a forensic beat, the bolero beat fit it yeah. because it's a forensic type song. You're in a uh, dilemma about what's going to happen with this girl. Right. And it just led to forensic in it, and that's what that pounding beat's doing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a real conscious sort of songwriting technique there of you, you want to create music that matches the mood of the lyric. Well, there it is, running scared. Well, you know, another one of those classic songs, and we've talked about it already, but it's Crying, um, which is just... Oh, that's a true story. Absolute <laughs> classic. Yeah. Um, released yeah. as a single in 1961. <laughs> That song is in the Grammy Hall of Fame, ranked number 69 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. I mean, what an honor. No kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd love to hear how you came up with, with all that goes into that great song. Basically, Roy and I did a lot of talking for we wrote. And I'd tell him about my love life. You know, he'd tell me about his. Hmm. And I told him about this girl. <clears throat> Here's one of the integral themes of part of that song. This girl... I was in love with her. I had a teenage love, what it was. Right. A crush on her. And uh, uh, just really flipped out on this girl. And and when we broke up, I, I was crying. I cried mm-hmm. over a lot. I told Roy I talked about it. And, uh, <clears throat> and I'd get over. I thought I could handle it. And then I'd see her again. Yeah. And man, whammo, she hit me right. I mean, I... I just fell apart over her again, fell in love with her again, and yeah. was crying again. And so there, that's the whole theme of that song. Roy had a similar incident with his wife, Claudette. He said he t- told her goodbye one time, went around the corner and fell apart, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or something like he that. He made it about but, a city uh, block. <laughs> yeah, about a city block, and said so he just fell apart. But uh, I think some of his story is true in there. But I know mine is definitely the truth of that song. Is the girl I loved and could not uh, the, uh, ever return in love, I guess what you call it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you call it. Yeah, yeah. Never-ending love. Yeah. Well, Crying was also the title of Roy's uh, second Monument album in 1963, and nine of the 12 songs were songs you guys wrote together, including Lana, which was a huge hit in Europe, and then uh, an album cut called Dance. Well, well, yeah, now, come on, pretty baby, well, they're dancing down the corner, put your best dress on, get with it, baby, we're gonna go all night long, yeah, yeah. And I bring up Dance because that's a song that you and Roy wrote together, but uh, Roy obviously recorded it as an artist, and you also recorded it as an artist um, on a deal that you had with Hickory Records. And yeah, that's true. Your version is is quite a bit edgier with kind of an R&B vibe. Well, they're dancing around the corner, put your best dress on, get with it, baby, gonna go all night long, yeah, yeah. interesting for me to compare how you know Roy approaches that particular song and how you approach uh, that particular song there's a difference there and so I was wondering 
What would you say are the greatest strengths that Roy brought to the table? And what are the greatest strengths that you brought to the table that kind of made your collaborations successful when you got together? I think the first thing was love for the work. Mm-hmm. We loved writing. We didn't write for money. We said, that'll come afterwards. Yeah. Right. We loved the songs first. He said, you love it, they'll love us. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So we uh, love... <clears throat> and the love of styling him, well, uh, I was a big part of his styling. Yeah, uh, I didn't say I taught him to sing. I didn't. I taught <laughs> him a different avenue of singing. Right. Yeah, a different roads to take with that singing. Right. And uh, that uh, was one of the biggest things I brought to the table was styling because I wouldn't let him get away with just a phrase like he'd go. Uh, just running scared. Each place we go, I said nope. Each place we go. Mm, yeah. In other words, there was always some sort of phrasing in there that I would work with him to get it, get the best out of him. Right. Yeah. And that's what I brought. The, the, the love of that guy as an artist was unbelievable. I loved his style, mm. right. the way he sang. And so I brought to the table the feeling of loving everything he did and how much I could give him to help him further his career. Yeah, it's interesting that you you actually said something about what roads to take his voice down because I sometimes think of it like, you know, like like it's a car. Like Roy was a Ferrari, you know, and you're <laughs> like, if I'm going to drive this thing, I want to take it on a, on an open road with some curves that I can take it, you know, take and, and show how it handles on the curves and really maximize what that car can do. Roy was a Ferrari, and you were a guy that knew how to drive it. That's about right. Yeah, yeah you couldn't teach that guy how to sing. He knows how to sing. He right. knows how to sing up and down. Right. But there's so many points in music that you can take, uh, roads you can take to get to a point in music without getting there. Yeah. Sure. You, you circle it and then get to it. And so that's what I did. I, my, my, my greatest contribution to the writing alone was, I guess, the lyrics and whatever was, and the musical, music was his styling. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, in 1962, Roy had a hit with your song, The Crowd, and the following year, he reached number 29 on the Billboard chart with Blue Bayou. Now, probably the best-known version of Blue Bayou, however, is Linda Ronstadt's major hit from 1977. That song has since become a standard. Where did the original idea come from for that one? On a trip from Texas to Tennessee. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Roy and I took a break. You know, business was hectic. Uh, a lot of stress. Everything needed a break. So I went to Texas and with my family. And coming back through Arkansas, they had these, these highways. They didn't have these big four lanes like they got now. They had two lanes. Hmm. And, and the water came right up to the highway, the wow. marshes and the lagoons and whatever right and so i was traveling down uh back toward uh, nashville and i come up toward this uh, bridge and some water was coming up to the bridge and the shadows of the sun through the water made a blue sheen Hmm. and it and of course it looked they looked like bayou to me anyway but i said blue bayou that's got to be a song yeah so i held on that title came into into nashville show and he said oh yeah i love it and 
and the stress of the business and everything and wanting a place that Sephora brought forth the whole idea of the thing. You know, great song. You know the, a great song. the place where nothing happens to you, everything's good. Mm. You can get away from everything, everything's beautiful. Yep. That's Blue Bayou. So Euphoria, it's a dream for retired people, vacationers, that's great. for young people wanting to get away, just anything you can think of that song fits. Right, sure. I understand that by the time Roy and his co-writer Bill Dees hit number one on virtually every chart in the world with Oh Pretty Woman in 1964, um, that you and Roy weren't really working together at that point. And, you know, there were still plenty of Joe Melson album cuts cropping up on Roy's LPs, like uh, They Call You Gigolette and I Get So Sentimental, Wedding Day, I'm in a Blue Mood, bunch of great songs. Um, but it seems the two of you kind of parted ways for a time. And I've read... Um, Plenty of speculation about why that is in various Roy Orbison biographies, but um, I'd love to get the the true and accurate story direct from the horse's mouth for the for the sake of history. We were very young, and and I didn't like the machine around Roy. Huh. I didn't like the business people moved in. They were real cold. I don't like that kind of people, you know. Right. And. Uh, they they wanted control of Roy and I had too much control of him and, and they didn't like it. Yeah. They didn't like it. Yeah. Because I was telling him what to do in sessions and everything didn't like it. Wow. Yeah. And Wesley Rose wanted you know, he didn't know how to handle his uh, the music or anything, but he wanted control of him. Yeah. They wanted control of him and, and itch everybody else out and I kinda of felt the squeeze so I said, you know, well, whatever, if that's if you think you're that good, I'll let you show him. Show me you can do it. Yeah. Right. So I backed out. Yeah. I was kind of hot-headed, too, you know. <laughs> Were you and Roy able to uh, maintain your personal friendship during that time, or did you kind of put we, some we, space? We didn't have a fight or anything, but yeah. we, it wasn't close anymore at that particular time. We were cordial to each other, you know. We saw yeah. each other. And yeah. But, but there was, it was... That, that missing element of the love we had between us at first, it wasn't there. Huh? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, outside of your work with Roy, you collaborated with different writers, including Dan Folger, with whom you wrote both sides of your final single as a Hickory Records artist, uh, His Girl, Stay Away From Her. If you don't want your Tell us a little bit about uh, the process of getting into the rhythm of working with someone else besides Roy. Uh, I, th- I think that kind of ruined me for, for every writer. Mm-hmm. Wow. <clears throat> After writing with Roy and that, that kind of combination, I mean, you're talking about the Everly Brother combination. Uh, yeah. You're talking about the Beatles combination in writing. You're t- yeah. You're talking about the greatest writing combination I've thought was around. Yeah. Right. Who's going to match that? I mean. Right. You can't get that feeling of these other writers. Hmm. Dan right. was a talented boy, you know, but he was a piano player back in Texas. Huh. But writing with other writers, other than Don Gant, uh, as, a, as a person, 
He's the only one I failed out that bunch. He was a Don Gant was a wonderful writer. He yeah. was yeah. a wonderful talent. Uh, you know, speaking of of Don Gant. Uh, in 1965, you found pop chart success yet again when you hit the top 10 with Run Baby Run, Back Into My Arms, um, a song that you and Don wrote that was recorded by the New Beats. several of the new beats titles including his girl jingle jangle world of love little child and crying my heart out which he wrote with dean mathis who was a member of the band how did you wind up kind of getting involved with uh with the new beats in that way well that's uh, i went i went in one day with a i'd written a couple of songs with bob montgomery which wound up a really good producer in nashville he wrote that uh the whole world turns misty blue misty right blue. yeah yeah and uh we were friends and so uh, he and I had write, written a few songs, and I took some in to play for the New Beats, and they liked it. And that's when the first time I met them, and then we got acquainted, and that, that came, you know, Run Baby Run and some of these songs. And, sure. And um, Pee Wee Mathis, which was the leader of that bunch. Larry Henley was the lead singer, but Pee Wee Mathis was a, was a honcho of that bunch. He knew <laughs> what he was doing. Right. Yeah, he yeah. knew how to put things together. He was really good. He, in fact, I brought a song out to them from Texas, from Larry Parsons and the boy drum for us, I told you about. Right. Mm-hmm. Created that cha-cha beat. They had written him a little uh, a DJ back in Texas, maybe not a little guy, but they wrote Bread and Butter. Oh, really? And I heard it, and I said, that's a hit song, Larry. I'll take it in. I took it in, brought it into Wesley, and he put it on a shelf somewhere up there where he puts his stuff. <laughs> and uh, Dean Mathis, out of the new bits, found it. Yeah. He said, I, I'm going to cut it. He put a style into it with Larry doing it. All set of voice and everything. And, right. And they had a big, I think it went number one. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was their big. That was their biggest hit for sure. I'm the one that brought the song to them. I brought it wow. to them from Texas. <laughs> wow, so that's that, pretty amazing. that kind of seemed in too. That was a little bit. Right. You know, made them draw to me a little bit because I, and then after Run Bay Run, of course, had some hits. Yeah. Well, and one of those hits was uh, a top 30 country record. Uh, Don Gibson recorded your song, Ever Changing Mind. And, you know, this is what I find fascinating. You had been in Nashville at that point for the better part of a decade and you were a major songwriting success. But, you know, even though you were working out of the country music capital of the world, uh, that was the first time that you actually appeared as a songwriter on, on the country chart. And it seems like there was a lot going on other than country music in Nashville back in the sixties. And I think folks sometimes don't realize that Nashville was a much more diverse city um, beyond country music back in those early days. you think that's true? You know, I don't know. There was not... We weren't acquainted. Roy and I brought the pop stuff in. Hmm. Right. And we weren't really aware of too much going on around us other than country. We did not uh, politic. We did not run with everybody in town and yeah. try to keep it. We just we decided to do what we had to do and hope 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 it happened. Yeah. Right. Not getting mixed up in a lot of different things. So we didn't. I'm not... I, I can't honestly tell you hmm. what I thought. I huh. really can't. Yeah, interesting. Well, as as the nineteen seventies dawned, you continued to find success on the country chart. You had a couple of charting singles for Ernie Ashworth. Yeah, little uh, Ernie. Yeah, yeah, three chart hits for Glenn Barber, including Unexpected Goodbye, which went to number twenty three, and also had Blue Bayou on the flip side of that single. If she 
was leaving Her looks were deceiving As I looked into her angel eye The last thing I expected Was her unexpected goodbye um, What was a typical day in your life, uh, you know, the life of a songwriter in that period? Uh, probably my whole life was tied up with songwriting hmm. or music some way. So probably most of my typical day was uh, riding out in a car, going to a little lake, going to a stream of water and watching it and see what kind of ideals formed in my mind. Right. Riding around different scenes and getting ideas and putting them down and writing. That's really all I did was write. Huh. You ever wonder if the policeman like wondered why you kept driving around the same spot? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it might have. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, in the 1970s, you and Roy started working together again. Uh, in 1971, he released a single of your song, Love Me Like You Did Last Night, which uh, preceded an album the following year called Roy Orbison Sings that included four tracks uh, written by the two of you, including God Love You, which was released as a single. Touching me, reaching me with everything you do Long nights through God love you God love you God love you God love you. And those four songs that you guys wrote together on that album um, were not only written by you, but they were also produced by you and Roy together. Um, talk about kind of the experience of working together, not just as songwriters, but also as a production team in the studio. Well, it's pretty. Roy, 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 like at that time, Roy was really down. He uh, he wasn't really up at all. Yeah, mm. low esteem, you know. His career dropped out from under him when he went to that movie deal with MGM. Right. And they, they just dropped him. They they didn't promote him as an artist like Fred Foster did, you know. Right. And uh, Monument. And uh, he was really low esteem. And, but he depended on me. He, he liked what I did. He liked what I, if I heard something, he liked it. He'd like it. Yeah. So I like that lick or I like that. And uh, he'd fight for it in session. He'd say, you know, leave that in. He liked whatever I did. Right. Uh, basically, he let me do, I, I did the production. Roy was just kind of a, okay, it's all right. You know, he was not involved. <laughs> he just mentally couldn't get in it. Yeah. And and uh, I could have used it because uh, <laughs> I, I think, I thought the productions were all right. I didn't think they were, were killers, but they got us through that period of time, and that's it, you know. Right, right. Well, I think it's interesting because I know you produced Roy's uh, Memphis album in 1972, and um, you included two of your songs that had been recorded by other artists. Roy kind of revived the new beats, Run Baby Run, Back Into My Arms, as well as I'm the Man on Susie's Mind, which was yeah, a, a hit for really Glenn Barber. Yeah. Um, I find it kind of interesting that there were actually no Melson Orbison co-writes on that particular album when you were the uh, the producer. Was that just because Roy was going through a, a time where he wasn't writing much? I, I, I can't exactly remember, but uh, uh, probably so. We just weren't writing at that time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He was well. What it is, he's under pressure to get a, get song cut by MGM right. to fulfill his contract. Yeah, and Wesley was calling him, pressuring him, you know, to get it done. And I think we 
in lieu of that, we 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 just got songs he could sing rather than worry about writing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 1973, Roy uh, released the album Milestones, which included the single Blue Rain Coming Down, which you wrote with, with Roy. Um, he then switched over to Mercury Records in 1976 for an album called I'm Still in Love With You that included quite a few Melson Orbison collaborations, including the single Sweet Mama Blue, um, Hung Up On You. Um, and as far as I can tell, I believe that Hung Up On You was the last new Joe Melson song released in Roy's lifetime, um, even though he, he kind of had a resurgence in the 80s. Um, you know, you, you talked a bit about Roy kind of feeling down at that point and maybe not feeling like there was a whole lot of optimism on his part. Um, how were you feeling at that point um, about this, the work that you guys were doing together? Uh, I thought it was way below what we could do. Yeah. I thought it was it was not as good as what we were. Because hmm. I was comparing it to what we had done in the past, of course, you know. Yeah. And it just wasn't the quality work that that I felt that that was we were capable of. We just weren't meeting it, and that's it. We weren't. It was not the quality work it should have been, and Roy was down, and, of course, you know, uh, if you got one down, the other probably can't carry the whole thing, so that's right. whatever. Right. Be as it may, we didn't have that combination that we used to have. Yeah. Well. And is that kind of kind of what precipitated, you know, kind of closing that, that chapter on working together? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, during the 1980s, new artists found success with songs that you'd written, you know, two decades prior, including Crying, which was a, a country hit for Stephanie Winslow in 1980, and also a, a top five country and pop hit for Don McLean in 1981. Now, oh, he killed it, man. Yeah, he killed that song. really cool version, very different take on it. Um, and, you know, obviously a small handful of the songs that you and, and Roy wrote together tend to be the ones that get recorded over and over and over again. But are there any uncut Joe Melson and Roy Orbison songs out there that the world has yet to hear? Yeah, there's some out there. I'm not sure. It would take some artists been interested in getting into them and, and feeling them, you know, like yeah. come at them at a different angle. We we had good cuts on them. They were beautiful. I thought Roy did a good job on them. And, right. But uh, they just didn't come out front. Yeah. Like Blue Bayou was a pretty song, but Roy and I's cut of it did not come out front like Linda's. Right. But if artists right. could move in on those songs and get their uh, uh, get a feel for it and come at it different than what they originally recorded, yeah, right. there's some hits in there. We got some beautiful songs. Yeah, Summer Song, one called Summer Song. Jigalette would still be a hit if somebody come in hmm. with it with a little different feel. Yeah. Are there any songs that uh, I'm sure there must be songs that you and Roy wrote that never got recorded at all that maybe were just demos or maybe never even got to that stage? Is there is there material that's that's completely oh, I'm sure there's unreleased? Some, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are. Yeah, I'd, it's be back in the dub sessions and things. I have no idea what they are. Some yeah. tapes in I'm some sure vault somewhere. Yeah, yeah, they're they're in the, they're in the yeah. <laughs> if some, the walls <laughs> if some musical archaeologist wants to dig, yeah. there's, there's uh, <laughs> some undiscovered gems, I bet. The back in the tides have forgotten. <laughs> Before we let you go, I want to talk about uh, something that's very much in the, in the now, and that's uh, platinum-selling Australian artist Damien Leith, um, who won Australian Idol in 2006 and got a lot of attention for his performance of Crying. And then the two of you ended up working together to collaborate on new material, including the songs Faith in Me, I Can Stop You Crying, uh, as well as Fields of Gold, which the two of you wrote, and, and was released as part of a three-song EP on iTunes. so beautiful, 
was gone. Talk about how you and Damien began working together and what still excites you about writing songs after nearly six decades. Well, he's got the most beautiful falsetto voice I've ever heard. He's, he's got a prettier, I don't say better than Roy. I don't say better. Who can say better than Roy? Hmm. But it's more beautiful voice. Yeah. Falsetto, I think that anybody I've ever worked with, yeah. and uh, he's just a wonderful young man, and I love to see him. He's going to be a big artist in Europe, where on the world, ports over. He's, he's got it. He's got it. Yeah, he's got it. It's it's so great. I can I can hear the energy in your voice right now talking about it. Oh yeah, I'm excited about him because he's, he he listens. I can style him. I help him, hmm. but he's also can do a lot himself. I can tell you, he's really got a gorgeous voice i just love to hear him sing yeah i mean yeah. he could sing a dictionary right 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 <laughs> how did you guys uh first get started working together well after he cut the roy album you know roy and i songs and things i called him to congratulate him mm. for a fine job because if you get to listen to blue bayou with him it's really really pretty right and also crying of course he hits some notes and crying it's unreal the ending notes unreal yeah and um part in the middle he does it's totally different Roy and I did it just gorgeous but I, I talked to him and so we got acquainted and so he said he wanted to come to Nashville and meet me so he, he said I'm coming down to Memphis or something but I, I want to stop over in Nashville and meet you and I said okay so we met to, we got together and got acquainted I liked him immediately and he liked me apparently I guess so yeah. and uh, we just got to be friends like that real close sure. real quick well uh this has been really a treat for us to, to get the chance to, to talk with you and to hear some of the background on some of these classic songs and, uh, and to get some details on, on your life and career. So we just want to, uh, you know, really thank you for, for sharing some time with us today. Scott and Paul, I thank you so much for calling me and being interested in my career with Roy and my songwriting, and I appreciate the call and your time. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.